Church, if you would, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Remain standing. We will be reading the first 17 verses. If this is your first time with us this morning, then you've come on the right Sunday. Just make sure you don't miss any Sundays for the next three years, and you'll get an entire exposition on the book of Romans. Uh, no, we're going to read Romans again, chapter one. I think I've advised you already, but if you are one of those note takers that takes notes in a separate thing than the bulletin, you're still going to want to grab a bulletin this morning because uh, we're going to be moving fast through some of those and I don't want you to miss anything. Here's what the precious and errant infallible word of God says. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you are also the, uh, are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established." That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we do thank You for gathering with us. Thank you for your spirit who is at work among us. Thank you for the word that you are causing to dwell in us. Lord, we ask for your help now. Would you help me to communicate clearly and all of us together to hear clearly? Father, would we as a body share a desire made manifest through our labor to understand your word and respond in a way that is in keeping with your will? In this way, would you build us up into our head, your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray as well for your power to go forth in salvation through the gospel, saving those who hear this message, who do not yet know you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm already bothered by my keys being in my pocket, so I'm going to set them right there and then probably leave them um, at some point, if you know that's what I'm famous for. Um, Okay, so... There are so many things that could be said about the book of Romans, and I could actually spend about 45 minutes quoting them, but I chose merely two. I had to, and I limited it to to simple ones. 
One by Thomas Drakes, who is a 17th century English Puritan. He says this of the book of Romans. He says, it is the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. Many have actually taken that and repeated that in their own commentaries as a launching point to begin to explore the book of Romans. So it seems appropriate to offer that as one reflection of this incredible book this morning. My favorite, however, is from a guy, maybe you've heard of him, by the name of Martin Luther. In a longer quote, he refers to Romans as purest gospel. Many scholars, expositors, pastors, and laymen have echoed these conclusions over the succeeding centuries, and it's our turn together, corporately, to approach this precious book, this purest gospel. Primarily, what I hope to do this morning is simply orientate our hearts and minds to the task. I want to lay out the book of Romans under six headings, giving you a complete overview of the book. Let me begin with the first heading, which is a gospel introduction. That's the first heading here this morning. We've already read verses 1 through 17 of Romans chapter 1, where this gospel introduction is introduced to us. And and it's where the Apostle Paul, you'll notice, starts by simply introducing himself. The very first word of the book is Paul. He, He begins, though, not just by introducing who he is personally, but he also introduces his authority. He introduces his authority. He says he is Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now, an apostle is someone who is sent by God, who is given direct revelation of Jesus Christ to speak to others about who Jesus was and what he had done to accomplish the salvation of God's people. Now, the Apostle Paul mentions that he's an apostle, not just so he can boost himself up and go on an ego trip. He's not mentioning his apostleship because he's full of himself. He's mentioning his apostleship because he's full of God's message. He doesn't know these Romans. Uh, Paul often wrote uh, letters to churches that he planted, that he knew personally. But but the church in Rome was actually not one of those churches. So if he's going to help them, He has to let them know that I am speaking to you with the very authority of God. I'm not just some guy giving you my Christian opinion, but I'm an authoritative teacher commissioned by God. In the next section, in verses 8 through 15, Paul not only introduces his apostleship, but then he goes on to introduce his heart. Paul introduces his heart. He's not just a man of authority, but he's a man of love. He says in verse 11 of chapter 1, these particular words, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. See, what's interesting about this is this book of Romans has gone on to be a subject of infinite theological debates. And there's a sense in which all of the libraries of Christendom are touched by Romans. But but I want us to remember as we begin this book that that this book was not written to stir academic debate. It was written to establish Christians, to strengthen them for the ordinary Christian life. It is written by a pastor to a people. And so Paul is eager to get to them, to impart uh, to them some spiritual gift to establish them. But then he says in verse 15, So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. That's his point. 
He wants to come to them, but until he gets to them, he is sending on this appetizer of his ministry, the book of Romans, that will outline the very gospel he is going to bring to him. A gospel that can make you strong. Let me ask you this morning, is there anyone in here that ever feels not strong enough to live the Christian life? Well, take two Romans and call me in the morning, right? That's the idea. That's the goal. We take these truths in, and what they do is they feed our souls, giving us the strength we need to walk the Christian life. Paul introduces us to his authority in verses 1 through 17, uh, or 1 through 7, I'm sorry, then to his heart in verses 8 through 15. And thirdly, he introduces us to his message in verses 16 through 17. His authority, his heart, and his message. He writes this in verse 17 of Romans 1. He says, For in it, being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, this is pivotal to understanding the entire book. When, when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, you've got to make sure exactly what righteousness he's talking about, or it's really not going to be good news to you at all, which is what the word gospel means. Here's what I mean by that. The righteousness of God can simply mean God's righteousness. The fact that He is righteous, that He is committed to doing or upholding what is right and punishing of everything that is wrong. That's true about God. Did you know that? God is righteous and God is wrathful against everything unrighteous. But we must realize that can't possibly be what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Can you imagine that? Let me tell you the good news of the gospel. God is righteous and destroys sinners. And then in chapters 1 through 3, he goes on and tells you, by the way, you're all sinners. That would not be a gospel. That would not be good news. Rather, the righteousness that Paul was speaking of in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 is not the righteousness of God's inherent character. It's not even the righteousness that God demands of us as his people, but rather Paul is speaking about the righteousness that God gives to people through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the great gospel, that even though human beings are sinful, are unrighteous, and can't earn righteousness, or can ever be good enough for heaven, no matter how long they try, God has given us a righteousness through Jesus Christ. Not as something that you can earn, but as a gift. That's why the righteousness of God can be good news instead of bad news. So the first heading, the first point is Paul's gospel introduction. His authority, his heart, and his message, which is gospel righteousness. The second heading is Paul then shows us our great gospel need. He shows us our gospel need. He he takes these Christians in Rome, and it's almost like he evangelizes them again. He he makes them go through all of their condemnation again. He, He makes them review just how guilty and dead they were so that they could appreciate the gospel even more. It's like, excuse me for this illustration, but it's almost like Paul's a bartender who slides them a bowl of salted peanuts so they'll really want to drink what he has. Right? If you understand that illustration, then repent. No, I'm kidding. Um, he, he's showing them essentially what their deadness is afresh. So they will appreciate the gospel afresh. He does this between Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to Romans 3.20. First of all, he says, we have a great gospel need because we are 
unrighteous. We are unrighteous. He says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It actually, in this section, it might be very helpful for us to picture the Apostle Paul operating as a lawyer with a case against humanity. And what he's doing is he's launching his case against the whole human race to show them exactly why they're guilty. He starts in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to the end of the chapter with the Gentiles who are unrighteous. He he speaks, Gentiles, you are unrighteous. As Francis Schaeffer Schaeffer used to refer to them, the Gentiles are the people without the Bible. He starts by showing them why they're guilty. And what he says is, every person has seen. They They have all had God revealed to them in creation. All the things that have been made to show what God is like. And so there's no person on any desert island, nor on the remote corner of the planet, who can say, I don't know anything about God. Why? Because God has shown himself to everyone in creation. But instead of responding to God, seeking more of this God, the universal reaction to all of God's revelation has been man's suppression. It says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They want, they desire their sin. And so what they do is they engage in the greatest cover-up of all time. They ignore God. And God says, because you knew me and rejected me, you are without excuse. So now Paul turns to the Jews. Just picture it. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he's dealing with the Gentiles. He says, you see God in creation? You ignored it, Gentiles. You are guilty. You can almost picture the Jewish people listening to this and saying, you tell them, Paul. Go get those dirty, nasty Gentiles with all their sexual immorality, gossip, slander, and rebellion. You tell them how sinful they are. And Paul doesn't look at them and say, okay, I got it. Yeah, thanks for the encouragement. I'll tell them. Rather... In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, the great lawyer who knows how to convict men's souls turns to the Jews and says, you're unrighteous too. (laughs) That's exactly what he says. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 of Romans. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the very same things. He keeps talking like this to the Jews until, if you skip around, he says in in Romans chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, he says, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you, do you not dishonor God through breaking the law? So he, he basically turns from these irreligious people to the people who have the Bible and says, you are every bit as bad. 
You might go to temple worship. You may have your Bible tucked up underneath your arm as you go, but you do the same exact thing as the Gentiles. And basically his point in this is saying not only are the Jews unrighteous or the Gentiles unrighteous, but all humanity is unrighteous. That's his summary statement. That's the text we know very well in Romans chapter 3, isn't it? Look at that with me. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Apostle Paul was saying, all humanity is equal. But but not equal in, in how good they are. But equal in two very specific and damaging ways. All of humanity are equally guilty before God. Nobody is going to be justified by the law because everybody has broken the law. And not only are people equally guilty, but you need to hear this, they are also equally powerless. They're equally guilty and equally powerless. They are all equally under the power of sin, both Jews and Gentiles. And listen, I'll be honest with you. My my heart was just broken this week as I was writing this. I I don't know why, but the Lord was bringing to my mind all the people who in the last seven and a half years have sat in these seats for a season. Listening to the gospel every Sunday and have now wandered away from Christ. They're not here anymore. I have this one shot to get to your souls, to make you understand the depth of the gospel. And so you need to hear what I'm saying. Don't think that because you've heard some of this before, it should go in one ear and and out the other. You, without Christ, are under the power of sin and are utterly guilty before God's law. This is your great gospel need. You are unrighteous because of what you've done, and you have no hope of ever being righteous because in yourself you have no power to change that's a great gospel need yes and this is my third point yet in spite of all of that in spite of that great gospel need God has given us a great gospel supply and it's just amazing as we go through what the supply is how it fits so perfectly with exactly what a sinner needs It says in Romans 3.21, it says, But now, in this moment where everyone is unrighteous, everyone is guilty, and everyone is in need of a righteousness that they cannot produce themselves, what does it say in Romans chapter 3, verse 21? It says, But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
Even the, un- even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is amazing. God has revealed the righteousness. Not some way that you can be righteous enough on your own merit. Not some path of works where you can earn righteousness. But he has revealed his righteousness in his own dear son. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he has revealed the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is perfect righteousness from the day he was born until the day he died. In fact, he is so righteous that death could not hold him. And he rose from the dead on the third day. This is the righteousness of God revealed. You see, everything Jesus did, every time that Jesus came across a difficult situation... He responds in love. Every time he's called to speak the truth, he speaks the truth in love. Every time that he's called to serve, he puts himself aside and serves. This is the righteousness of God. It's not something you earn by emulating Jesus. It's something he gives to you as you look at Jesus and put your faith solely in him. And then the Bible goes on to say that if you believe in Jesus and receive this righteousness, that guess what happens God justifies you. He declares you righteous. He says, that's it. You you may not have earned righteousness, but I declare you righteous in view of what my own dear son has done. Then as if it could get any sweeter than that, Romans chapter 4 sweetens it. Romans 4 tells us that all of this glorious gift of righteousness comes to us completely and totally apart from any works we could ever do. That it is given to us purely, completely, and exhaustively by faith. The righteousness of God is given by faith. Just by believing. He gives us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 2. It says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. So if if Abraham had earned his way into righteousness, then Abraham could go ahead and pat himself on the back. Congratulations, Abraham. But Paul says this is not what the scriptures say. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham became righteous simply by believing in God, just by trusting the promise that God could do the impossible. God did the impossible, and he justified Abraham the sinner. And then verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you work your own way to heaven and God gives you heaven, that's because you earned it. But salvation is very different, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Oh, what name do we give to this God? What will we call him? What name would be appropriate for the God of the Bible? How about this name? He is who justifies the ungodly. He justifies them. The word means he declares them righteous. He says of ungodly people, you are godly in my sight. He says of wicked people, you are righteous in my sight. What God is this? 
Is this a God who thinks very little of sin? Who says, yeah, that's all because sin is just not a big deal so I can declare the ungodly righteous. No, this is the Holy One of Israel. This is the one who is too pure to even look upon sin. The one who dropped Uzzah dead for one infraction of his law. How in the world can we call this God the one who justifies the ungodly? Well, the only way he could ever have this title and justify the ungodly is because he provides a righteousness for his people through his own dear son. Well, Romans 5 goes on and says, you think that's sweet? We'll make it even sweeter still. It tells us that we now have all kinds of benefits from having been justified by faith. We have benefits from this. It's not just that we believe and we're declared righteous even though we're unrighteous, but there are actually real lasting benefits from this justification. And this whole chapter is actually in what we call, get a little word nerdy here, the present perfect tense. It means it's something that's happened in the past, but in it has ongoing results. And so therefore, since we've been justified by faith in the past, we now have these ongoing results. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is God's great gospel supply. It is for guilty sinners. He gives them a righteousness they could never earn. But now, Paul tells us more about the gospel. But, but in, in doing that, and he does this all throughout the book of Romans. In fact, he does it in the introduction if you, you catch it. Paul is going to go on a little bit of a tangent. I love that. That's assuring to me as a pastor that Paul himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes on tangents. He has to answer some concerns here. He has to address a difficulty that arises. See, when you start telling people that God justifies the ungodly, that he forgives sinners, that he declares wicked people righteous because of the righteousness of his own dear son, there's always going to be someone who stands up and says, Well, does that mean I can keep on sinning? I mean, if you just said that God has all my sin covered, why not? Well, Paul begins to introduce more of God's great gospel supply to answer that question in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Look at that with me. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So so Paul says, if, if you think, can we keep sinning? The answer is not, you shouldn't go on in sin, but you cannot go on in sin. And the reason you cannot go on in sin is because you have died with Jesus. You have been raised with Jesus Christ. And right now, every single true believer is united with Jesus. Do you understand that the Christian life is not simply following Jesus? But it's understanding that the life of God in the soul of man. It's the very life of Jesus in us. So that continuing in unrepentant, habitual sin is not a possibility. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have a bad day. 
It doesn't mean that you and I don't stumble in very many ways. But it does mean that in the life of a true believer, there is an unstoppable upward trend in their lives. It means that you, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 17, have become obedient from the heart, that, uh, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. It means you've become a slave of righteousness and you now must do what righteousness says because the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Paul gives us his gospel introduction. He says, I am an apostle. I love you. I have good news. Then he outlines our gospel need. You're guilty and you're dead. Then he shows the gospel supply that matches our need. He has justified the guilty and made alive the dead. So there is no one in the church of God who's powerless anymore to overcome sin because all have been given life, new life in Christ. Well, then what Paul does is he gives us really two contrasting views of what now we'll call the gospel life. He introduces us uh, to the, or he tells us about the gospel life. This is heading number whatever, four something. Whatever that number says it, four, that's the one. What is the dynamic that runs our gospel life? What is the power that motivates our gospel life? Well, in in Romans 7, he says it's a life that's not governed by law. But then in Romans 8, he says it's a life that's driven by the Spirit. And listen, this dynamic that runs the Christian life, that motivates the Christian life, is not the law. He's going to say in Romans 7 that you're dead to the law. But he'll say in Romans 8, you've been given the Spirit. You are led by the Spirit. The Spirit now cries within you, Abba, Father, in your heart. He helps you in your weakness. And so, the gospel life is not the law, but the Spirit. Now, here's what I need to explain to you. A couple things about why this would come up at this point in the book of Romans. Up until this point, the Apostle Paul has been saying, you are not justified by works of the law. You are not made right with God by doing what the law of Moses said. The law is done. Now you trust God and are justified by the gospel. But you and I have to understand, this was written to a group of Jews and Gentiles. And and for the Jew, this would have been really strange words. Really difficult words to comprehend. In fact, that's one of the reasons I'm glad we're going to Romans after we've spent so long in Leviticus. Because we need to understand this. These words would have been a stumbling block to the Jews. To come to a Jew whose entire cultural heritage was that his people have been redeemed out of Egypt, been given the law of Moses, they've been trying to follow the law of Moses, to have Paul come along and say, you no longer need the law. That it's not obedience to the law that justifies. The law is done away with. This would have been extremely confusing language. Paul needs to explain what the law did and what our relationship to the law is. Now, I need to say a second thing about the law before I go on. Because not getting in this distinction is going to get you in all kinds of trouble when you think about your Bible. When Paul tells Christians they're not under the law, we need to be clear about something. And that is, the law we're talking about is the law, not the law as commandments, but it's the law as a covenant. Paul's not telling them that they're no longer under the commandments contained in the law. He's telling them they're no longer under the covenant of the law. Commandments, of course, are when God tells you to do something. Don't kill. Don't steal. A covenant relationship is is a relationship where you are in with God and it has particular characteristics. So when Paul says, 
you're dead to the law. You're no longer married to the law. He's not saying you have no relationships to the commandments that God has given you. No, listen, Christians still obey commandments. Even Old Testament commandments as they're brought forward to us in the new. In fact, Christians, more than anyone else, can obey God's commandments with joy. His commandments are not burdensome. But this is a critical distinction. The commandments of the Old Testament, they did not come to us in a vacuum. They didn't come to us out of nowhere. They came to us as a part of the covenant. They came as part of a relationship that God was in with His people. And the covenant said this, You must obey all of these commandments or you will die. It wasn't that just God gave commandments, but God told them how those commandments functioned in their relationship. He says, keep them and you will live, break one and you will die. What Paul tells us that that we're dead to the law, when he says that, he's telling us that we're utterly dead to that covenant where perfect obedience is required to live. Where one transgression will have us cast aside from God. In fact, look at this in Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Listen to me, beloved. This relationship with God where perfect obedience was required for life and one act of disobedience would bring down the condemnation of God on you. This this killed the Jews. In fact, it is condemning. It actually stirs sin up in you, as it says in Romans 7. The more you feel... You must, not, you must do it in order to live, the more it provokes the worst desires in you to do what is not right. It's like, and I'm not speaking of a personal example here or anything, it's, it's like if you tell a five-year-old, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. What will that five-year-old think about for the rest of the day? Getting his hand, I'm sorry, getting their hand in the cookie jar. Where will you find that hand eventually? In a cookie jar. Because the command not to, when applied to sinful people, promotes a desire to want to. So Paul says this whole relationship with the law, it's gone. Yes, the command remains. But the covenant where perfect obedience is required for acceptance, that's done away. Now you belong to the one who has kept the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul transitions in Romans 8 to how the life of Christian is not governed by law, but is one driven by spirit. I'm going to go through all of these very quickly. Where do we even start? This is why I couldn't even start talking about Romans 8 without just reading the entire thing because it's so beautiful. Let me just show you some of the things in Romans 8 the spirit does very quickly. He leads us, verse 14. 
He leads us. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Not only does He lead us, but He speaks to our inner being. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit also in us groans for the resurrection of our bodies. He leads us. He speaks to us in our inner being. He groans for the resurrection of our bodies. The Spirit of God also helps us in our prayers when we're weak. That's one we know well from Romans 8, 26. And then finally, the Spirit of God sustains us to the very end. The Christian life is a life lived by the power of the Spirit of God. The threat of condemnation is gone. The promise of justification is ours. And the new life of the Spirit begins to strengthen every child of God. Now my fifth point. We saw gospel introduction, gospel need, gospel supply, gospel life. Fifth point is a gospel theodicy. Now, theodicy is probably not even a $10 word, right? That's easily a $100 word. What does it mean? It's actually pretty simple. Theodicy just means a defense of God. And so I love this part. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul gives a defense of God. And what exactly is he defending? I mean, what, what in the world could God have possibly done wrong that would need defending? Well, here's the situation. The people in Rome are now aware that they have received new life by the Spirit. That they've received all of the promises of God. But the Jewish people are asking themselves, wait a second. What happened to Israel? Right? Like, how come all of Israel, are, they're not all getting saved? How come... All the glorious things promised to Israel in the Old Testament aren't happening. In fact, if those things aren't happening to Israel, then how can we know that we can trust you, God? I mean, with all these glorious promises you've just given us in Romans chapter 8, how can we trust you if all those things you promised to Israel are not happening? You see the problem? Israel's looking at this and saying, okay... You're telling us we're we're justified. You're telling us we're declared righteous, that we're made new, that we have the Spirit, that we're not under the law. But God said a lot of great things to Israel back in the Old Testament. And most of those people are not currently or didn't believe the Messiah. They didn't receive Him. In fact, they killed Him. Most Jews aren't getting saved. So, So what's going on if God doesn't keep His word to the Jews... How do we know he's going to keep his word to us? And so, so Paul launches to a defense of God. And, and here are the three basic contours of that defense. I'm going to give these quickly, but they're again in your notes. First, God didn't save Israel. Well, yes, he did. He just saved the elect in Israel, which was always his intention. God didn't save Israel. Well, Romans 10 says that he all day long offered the gospel to them, but they refused it. So it was them who rejected him, not him who rejected them. Well, God didn't save Israel. Paul says, actually, he is saving Israel. Remember, I'm a Jew, and he's saving lots of people like me. So let me just use one example of that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. You you see here Paul kind of anticipating this problem that he's going to have to defend. And he says there, he says, But it is not the word of God has taken no effect. See, that was their fear. That's what they're worried about. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. 
Paul says there's a nation called Israel, but then he tells them later in that chapter, within that nation, there's a true Israel, and that is the elect of Israel. Those people have all been saved. Now, I do want to offer just one little observation, because I know that word elect or election is just a a, a midst of controversy all the time for all of history, but I want to make this observation about this. Notice, in Romans 9, this doctrine of election is presented to solve a pastoral problem, not to cause one. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, don't worry about not all of Israel being saved, all the elect are being saved, and that's actually meant to assure people, to cause them comfort, not to make them less assured of God's good and gracious sovereignty. That's all I'll say to that. You'll have to wait in 2027, when we get to Romans 9, to hear the rest. <laughs> Finally, my last point. Gospel introduction, gospel need, gospel supply, gospel life, gospel theodicy. And finally, gospel worship in chapters 12 through 16. So after displaying all of this glorious doctrine, Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In response to all of God's grace, your guilt, His justification, your death, His resurrection, your new life in the Spirit, in light of all of these amazing mercies, do something really spiritual. Offer your body to God. Isn't that amazing? That's that's the kind of spirituality that only the creator of a physical universe could ask for. The most spiritual thing you can do is use your physical body to serve God. Giving your flesh and blood body to the Lord to the point of fatigue in response to the gospel. That is spiritual worship. Paul then goes on to say and lay out exactly what spiritual worship is and what it looks like in all kinds of situations. I'll go through these again very quickly. He talks about spiritual worship with spiritual gifts and under persecution in chapter 12. He talks about obeying government and learning to live a life of love in chapter 13. In chapters 14 and 15, he talks about learning how to love Christians with different secondary convictions. Does that say Christmas in that? Okay, mine says Christmas. I'm glad Justin corrected that. Uh, You can love Christmas too. Uh, He talks about learning how to love Christians with different secondary convictions than yours, and that's really hard, by the way. In chapters 15 and 16, he talks about his own life of love to reach all the nations with the gospel. All of this, all of this is spiritual worship. This is what the doctrines of Romans are meant to lead to. Worship in all of life. Now, one thing I fear as I just read through those very quickly as I outlined this for you is that you might walk away with the idea that Romans 12 through 16 has various topics. Right? Government, spiritual gifts, dealing with believers with different secondary convictions. But, but what unites chapters 12 through 16 is our response to gospel is to be a life of love. Romans 12 verses 9 through 10 says, Let love be without hypocrisy, but kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Romans 13 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans fourteen fifteen. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. See what Paul's doing? 
He's doing actually what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love. The goal of all these massive, glorious, weighty, beautiful, God-glorifying doctrines in Romans is to create a people who care about and lay down their lives for one another in love. Paul did not write to ignite debates, but to create a people of love. So, beloved, this, this is our goal. As we prepare to head into Romans these coming weeks, months, probably years, it's not merely to be sharpened. It's not merely to have our minds clarified, to even be in all, though all those things are good, and certainly we will. Our goal, as we study this book, is to be moved to love, moved to be like Christ. And so I'll just, I'll end in a moment of reflection soon. We'll have a time of silent prayer where where you can ask the Lord to begin, first of all, to be oh so thankful for this purest gospel. That as you recognize the gospel in the book of Romans, even have you heard it proclaimed this morning, that it would align with the testimony of your soul, that you are you are one who's been introduced to a gospel that shows you your great need and supplies you with everything you need and propelling you to live a Christian life, a life not of the law but of the spirit, that gives you a defensive doctrine but then also is worship, leads you, stirs you to worship in love. And so we're going to have a moment of silence in response that you would just allow that gospel message to pour over you, but you would understand that the end of the, of the matter is that you would be stirred to greater love. So even now, think about the ways that you can greatly love your neighbor and expand on that continually. And if you're not a believer here this morning, if you never understood what your great gospel need is, I pray that you've heard it very clearly from the book of Romans. That you would, in this time of reflection, call out to the Lord and admit that He has supplied everything that you need in Christ. That you and your righteousness have not earned salvation and could never earn salvation. But you've been given a righteousness that is foreign to you, a righteousness through Christ. That if you repent of your sins and believe in what Jesus did on the cross to provide for you that righteousness, that you today can be saved. Take this time to reflect over the good things the Lord has spoken and that He allow you to allow to work into your heart. I just want to end with the words of Luther, where we began. Referring to this book of Romans as purest gospel, he wrote this. He says, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Let's pray together. Gracious Father. In fact, let's give give a time of silence first, and then we'll pray. We'll give this time of reflection and silence, and then I'll end end our prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses, that you loved us 
even while we were still at enmity with you. Thank you that though, Lord, we followed the prince of the power of the air, that you intervened, that you sent your son to live the life we refused to live and to die the death that we should have died. That you raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that our life is secure in him. And now you call us to walk in love and holiness. Father, would you help us to make it our highest aim to live for the sake of his name? Would you unite us around that goal that we would see it more clearly? That our minds might be renewed according to your truth to know how to use our bodies in this world as children of light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this hymn of response this morning?